Finding Solace in Starlight. This week on Planetary Radio. I'm Sarah Al Ahmed of the Planetary Society with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. This week, Serafina Nance joins us to discuss her new book, Starstruck, a memoir of astrophysics and finding light in the dark. Then we'll check in with Bruce Betts for what's up and an update on this week's night sky. I'd like to send a huge thanks to Matt Kaplan, our senior communications advisor. He stepped in for me last week while I was on vacation dancing under the starlight at a music festival for three days. And it's always wonderful to have him back on the show. We've got some happy space news this week. Spain has joined the Artemis Accords. That makes Spain the 25th signatory to the international agreement, which was set forth by NASA to establish best practices and norms for exploring the moon and cislunar space. 25 signatories on the Artemis Accords. That's really wonderful to hear. And continuing with the moon mission hype, China also aims to land Tycho knots on the moon before 2030. Lin Zigyang, who's the deputy director of the China Manned Space Agency, announced last week that the agency is developing a whole bunch of things, including a new human-rated launch vehicle, crew spacecraft, a lunar lander, moon suit, other equipment, and a whole new launch site. I am so excited for this new age of human lunar exploration. It's going to be wonderful to see people back on the moon. And in news from the outer solar system, the James Webb Space Telescope has spotted a huge plume jetting out of Saturn's moon Enceladus. The Space Telescope imaged the plume of water vapor that spans about 9,600 kilometers. That's about 6,000 miles. Enceladus is spewing water out of its icy crust at about 300 liters or 80 gallons per second. That is just startling when you really think about it. And the JWST image of this water coming out of Enceladus is admittedly not nearly as cool as the Cassini images of the water plumes, but the fact that we can see those water plumes all the way from JWST's orbit near Earth is really impressive. And one more reason why we should definitely, definitely send a mission to Enceladus. You can learn more about these and other stories in the June 2nd edition of our weekly newsletter, The Downlink. You can read it or subscribe to have it sent to your inbox for free every Friday at planetary.org slash downlink. All right. Our guest this week is Serafina Albadri Nance, the author of the newly released Starstruck, a memoir of astrophysics and finding light in the dark. It was released on June 6th. Serafina is an astrophysicist, but she's also an analog astronaut, a science communicator, and a woman's health advocate. She got her undergraduate degree at the University of Texas at Austin and is currently working on her PhD in astrophysics at UC Berkeley. Hi, Serafina. Hi, thank you so much for having me. It's wonderful to finally actually get to speak to you because we've had a few brief conversations on the internet. Speaking with you in person is something that I've wanted to do for a long time. So thanks for being here. Right back at you. I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm super excited to be here. Longtime fan of the Planetary Society. I feel like our life experiences are very unique, but here we are, both of us, Arab-American astrophysicists who went to UC Berkeley. So, you know, small world. <laughs> Extremely small. I feel like the sample size is, is right here in this conversation. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> How close are you to graduating? 
six months is the is the fingers crossed timeline. Yeah, where it'll be December or May is the is the plan. Well, good luck. It's a big moment, you you know, and and it's funny because not only do I relate to your time at UC Berkeley, but just so much about, I mean, not just carrying Harry Potter books around as a kid, like they were a security blanket, but about (laughs) space and the way that you use it to contextualize your life. And that's really what this book is about. It's about your science journey, but more so it's about how space can be a vehicle for our mental health and our understanding of self and how we connect to other people. So how would you describe Starstruck? I think you just nailed it. I mean, to me, this is a book about the sort of inevitable obstacles that come up in one's life and the way in which the night sky and my passion for the universe really provided the perspective and the impetus to be able to overcome those obstacles. There are unique experiences to me, obviously, in the book, but there is a universality to that notion that we all experience hardship and we all try to find something to help us endure. And for me, my love for astronomy and for the night sky was that. Starstruck's format does this kind of interesting thing where it opens each chapter with information about the universe, the formation of stars, black holes, the death of the universe, all of these interesting space factoids. And then you follow it up with moments from your life. How did you make the decision about what things about space to share and how do they relate to the stories that come after? The format was something that felt really important to me when I was brainstorming how I wanted to write this book. I have always felt that science is fundamentally human. And when we communicate science, when we talk about science, when we do science, we are bringing our humanity to the subject. So this book was an exercise in me weaving those two together. So I sort of trace the universe's evolution in parallel with my own evolution as a human. And I tried to choose topics that relate to each chapter, but also, of course, relate to the broader evolution that takes place in the book. There are some analogs, I think, that work better than others. But overall, there's this really interesting exploration through the universe up there and the universe within oneself. You kind of use space as a coping mechanism throughout your life, a tool to get through these traumatic moments by putting yourself in the context of the cosmos. But how has your understanding of space helped you process your life experiences? I have struggled with anxiety since I was a kid. And I think I really sought out the night sky from a very young age as something that could ground me and could bring me joy and peace and curiosity and really put sort of everyday life into perspective. In some ways, it was a survival mechanism. I needed something to calm me down or or give me some sense of perspective. And space was that for me. You know, one thing that I love about the night sky is that it's it's accessible more or less no matter where you are in the world. I mean, all you have to do is walk outside and and look up, weather abstaining. So I think for me, that was an incredibly powerful tool 
it was always there. And there's something really comforting about that. And I think every single time I look up, I am sort of blown away by how small we are in the grand expanse of the universe. And there's something that really grounded me in that notion throughout my entire life. Something I was thinking about kind of in the the way that you use space to contextualize your life in this book is that it's not all one-sided. It's not just the universe is so big that my problems seem small. You also use it to make you feel close and connected with the people on earth. And I'm thinking specifically about the section where you talk about the 2011 Egyptian revolution, which impacted your family deeply as an Egyptian American. And I myself was actually in Cairo just a few months before that happened. So I had a similar experience watching it unfold on TV the way you did. I remember you saying that in that moment, you were thinking about your family and how distant they felt and how you couldn't Mm -hmm. be there with them, but that you were all on the same planet together and that made you feel closer to them. And Mm -hmm. I think that kind of duality of the way that people think about space is so interesting. And often people fall lopsidedly into the side that's like, we're small and insignificant when there's, there's so much more to it. We are so small. The universe is so big. And we are on a very precious planet and we are all connected as a human species on this planet. And there is something fundamentally beautiful about that. You know, when we talk about space exploration or when we talk about anything as like a human wide experience, I think it's really important to remember that connection because for me, that is grounding. Understanding or thinking about the importance of of our place here in the universe, that's where it all starts and ends, is that we are all part of the same the same universe. And there's so many moments in this book that I wish we could go over. We could literally talk about it for hours, but I don't want to spoiler it <laughs> for all the people that are about to read it. There's a lot of this feeling of trying to push through that intense feeling of being an outsider, not just because of your heritage, but over multiple moments in this book, people tell you that astronomy isn't for you. And unfortunately, beginning with an astronomer at your science camp as a kid, I've probably lost count of the number of times someone has said something similar to me. But I'm wondering if you have a similar experience, which is that every time someone comes my way and says, this isn't for you, I get more and more feisty, more stalwart in my conviction to try to prove them wrong. Like, did you experience I love thing? that. You know, I think I do now to some extent, but I think as a kid, you know, I was so impressionable. Yeah. I deferred a lot to my elders. I think, you know, part of that is being a kid. Part of that is especially being a kid of, of an immigrant. Your parent is sort of the, you know, godlike figure in your life and you really defer to them. and. I have spent a lot of my life trying to untangle what messaging is useful and and what is not. And I can choose to agree and, I don't know, accept it or not. And that is where the agency comes in. That's where you sort of reclaim that control over your actions and what you decide to do with your life. But as a kid, it's incredibly difficult. And I was just writing about this earlier today. Those those statements can create entire lives out of it. And it's a hard thing because you you manage to power through it and then you finally begin your degree. 
And I think this is something that not enough people really talk about, that experience of finally getting into the astrophysics courses and suddenly feeling like, I hate physics, uh-huh. or this isn't coming naturally to me, or I'm afraid to ask questions because I don't want to seem unintelligent or unworthy. And so many people have this experience and they imagine that everybody else around them totally has it and they know what's going on. But in reality, we're all just flopping around. Physics is hard. (laughs) (laughs) Physics is hard. My very first physics class in college, I felt like an idiot. Like I did not understand anything that was going on. I would, I would study for hours into the night and I wouldn't feel like I was making any progress. And interestingly, I got better and better at physics the longer I, I took physics classes. So by the end of my, my college career, I was taking the ostensibly hardest classes that the, the university had to offer in physics, and yet I was excelling at them in a way that I did not excel in my first physics classes. And that's because I had finally built up this intuition or this, you know, understanding of, okay, this is what physics really is. And I wish someone had told me that because it's, it's ultimately not about force diagrams or, or, you know, it's, it's, it's about how to think about problems, how to break them down, how to use the tools at your disposal to solve them. That understanding didn't come to me until I was basically done with my degrees. You have to learn to be okay with failing. And then later on, I think you start to learn that it's it's actually not about the answer. It's about how you get there. And that's where the fun is. That's where it gets interesting. But the path to getting there can be really uncomfortable. I once got a pretty good answer on a, on a question in college, but I was still 41 orders of magnitude off on oh, my yeah. calculation because I, you know, I think I divided instead of multiplied or something. It's really easy to make mistakes. So yes, be is. kind to yourself. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But it can be really hard when you then get into your classes and you finally made it, you're dealing with this kind of imposter syndrome feeling, and then you're encountering this inbuilt misogyny from your your professors and your classmates as you go along. It's easy to see astrophysicists and other great scientists as these powerhouses that delve into the mysteries of the universe and just pull out great wisdoms that they plucked from the ether, right? But in reality, we're all humans and we're all going through these very human struggles. And you and your family have been through a lot of hardships because of a a genetic predisposition to certain forms of cancer. Would you mind sharing a little bit about that journey and how it impacted your dreams to become an astrophysicist? My grandmother was diagnosed with ovarian cancer and ultimately passed away from pancreatic cancer when I was in fifth grade. And I think even then, I sort of always knew that cancer was going to be something that I thought about in my family. It wasn't until my dad was diagnosed with metastatic, so stage four prostate cancer when I was 23, that really became this crystallized reality that I was living in. Shortly after his diagnosis, he got genetic testing and learned that he carries the BRCA mutation which increases his risk for prostate cancer, which is what he was ultimately diagnosed with and was inherited from his mom. I got genetic testing shortly afterwards and learned that I too carry the BRCA mutation, which increases my risk of breast cancer to 87%. 
and my risk of ovarian cancer to about 30%. Yeah, I mean, that's a really sobering thing to learn about your life and about your body. And I think there's something actually really beautiful about understanding why your family is the way that it is and seeing how your lived experience is actually mirrored in the generations before you. For that, I'm really grateful. I feel I will always feel extremely close to my dad and my grandmother because of this. But of course, it's not something that anybody wants to experience or endure. And that's why I made the decision to get a preventative double mastectomy when I was 26. And that reduced my risk of breast cancer from the original 87% to less than 5%. So that was me basically seeing this lineage before me and saying, I am going to choose not to do this and reclaim a sense of control and power over my own life in doing so. I mean, my dad, when I was diagnosed with BRCA, he he felt really guilty. I mean, because he knew that the gene mutation came from him, but he didn't have a choice. He he there's no that this test didn't exist when he was my age and and having kids. But I have the choice now. So I don't write about this in the book, but something that I'm doing is genetic testing of my embryos so that I can screen out BRCA carriers to ensure that this sort of lineage ends with me. And that feels like a, an incredible gift from science that I am able to make that decision and protect my future child and break the cycle. It's such a kind thing to do. And I, I love that you can do that. That makes me so happy for you. Did that experience in any way convince you that you should write this book? Yeah, I actually decided I wanted to write this book on the heels of my mastectomy. I It was about a month afterwards and I was thinking about my healing process and what it meant. I was trying to just contextualize. You know, I've, I've gone through this huge thing. What does it mean to, to be in this position? And how did I get here? And, and all of a sudden, I was, you know, the research aspect came through, the science aspect came through, the way that I have endured, I think is, is, is the right word, because it's not like I've surmounted obstacles. It's more of just like I've just pushed through them and it's out of survival. And that was really interesting to me because I think a lot of time you hear stories about people succeeding or overcoming obstacles or, or, or reaching that career moment and it's sunshine and rainbows. I mean, the way that it's depicted. And ultimately that's not at all the story that I was interested in telling that felt very disingenuous to my lived experience. For me, it was really important to share the heartbreak, the pain and the joy because both combined got me here. Well, I wish you all the luck in your journey. And I hope that just as space has bolstered me through the hard times in my life, it continues to do so for you. Because I think that if more people could just see themselves in the scope of the universe and just how small and precious each of our moments are, we'd probably all be better, happier people, or at least have an easier time getting through the hardships of life. I could not agree more. Well, thanks for speaking with me, Serafina, and for this beautiful book. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so, so happy you enjoyed it. Thank you. Life can be really complicated sometimes. Serafina's tale of resilience and perseverance is inspiring, but 
it's also a really great reminder that we have to be kind to ourselves and each other. So the next time you're feeling stressed out, if you can spare a moment, step outside at night. Feel the starlight on your face and dream about other worlds. Let yourself be distracted by the sheer absurdity of the fact that you and I exist on this rock around a star, just hurtling through the immense and beautiful infinity of the universe. You and I are made of stardust. And in case you need to hear it today, I am so proud of you for everything that you've overcome in this life. And I'm really glad that you're here with us on planet Earth. You can hear the extended edition of my interview with Serafina Albadri Nance, the author of Starstruck, a memoir of astrophysics and finding light in the dark, in the podcast and online version of this show at planetary.org slash radio. You can also find it anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. We also have a special bonus segment about how you can submit your name to fly on the upcoming Europa Clipper mission, and you know you want to. We'll be right back for what's up after this short break. Hi, this is Kate from the Planetary Society. How does space spark your creativity? We want to hear from you. Whether you make cosmic art, take photos through a telescope, write haikus about the planets, or invent space games for your family, really any creative activity that's space-related, we invite you to share it with us. You can add your work to our collection by emailing it to us at connect at planetary.org. That's connect at planetary.org. Thanks! Hello, I'm George Takei, and as you know, I'm very proud of my association with Star Trek. Star Trek was a show that looked to the future with optimism, boldly going where no one had gone before. I want you to know about a very special organization called the Planetary Society. They are working to make the future that Star Trek represents a reality. Boldly go to build our future. Welcome back to Planetary Radio. And now it's time for What's Up with Bruce Betts, the Chief Scientist of the Planetary Society. Hello, Bruce. Hello, Sarah. I have returned from my vacation at a music festival. It's the Electric Daisy Carnival in Las Vegas that literally started at sundown and went till sunup. So I'm not usually out all night long looking up at the planets, but just being out there at the music festival wow. with Venus shining over everyone, it was magical. Cool. Good to have you back. Yeah, it's nice to be back. Should we start with things in the night sky this time? Let's do it. It's early in the month. We probably have all kinds of stuff to look forward to. It's planet stuff, really, right now, but it's really good planet stuff, especially in the evening sky, anywhere looking in the west in the evening, super bright Venus, just past its highest point in the sky for this time around, but it'll continue to be high for Venus. So easy to see reddish Mars is closing in on Venus. It won't get too close, but they'll get fairly close at the beginning of next month. And reddish Mars is much dimmer. In the pre-dawn sky, we got stuff happening. Saturn's already up, flying high in the pre-dawn in the east, looking yellowish. And now it's getting pretty easy to see Jupiter, very bright, still kind of low in the east, getting higher and easier to see as weeks pass. Looking ahead on June 14th, the crescent moon is hanging out next to bright Jupiter and making a lovely pairing over there in the pre-dawn east. Moving on to this week in space history, 2010, Hayabusa, the Japanese Hayabusa mission, returned 
the first samples directly from an asteroid to Earth. Not a whole lot of sample, but enough to do some science and prove it could be done. So that happened in 2010. And we'll move on to... I don't know how to do random space fact in the Electric Daisy Festival proper way. Maybe a... Random space fact. Close. <laughs> anyway, but this is nifty, Keen. Every second... One just went by, multiple. The sun's core fuses about 600 million tons of hydrogen into helium. But what's really groovy in that whole E equals MC squared conversion fusion weirdness is it converts 4 million tons of matter into energy every second. No, not matter anymore. Now it's energy. Cool. That's so so much. And our star isn't even like that big of a star. Can you imagine hey, what's going on in the heart of like O-type stars? Don't let it hear you say that. <laughs> I love you, son. I didn't mean it. You're awesome. We'd be in a lot of trouble if we were hanging out at this distance from an O-type star. So anyway, thankful for so many things in the world and outside the world. Let us move on to what we're really thankful for, which is the trivia contest. I, I'm sure everyone is. And I asked you, what moons of planets in our solar system have average densities greater than or equal to 3 grams per cubic centimeter or equivalently 3,000 kilograms per cubic meter? How do we do? Most people got this right, although some people did want to include Ganymede, but that wasn't correct. The answer is Io, our moon, and Europa. Most people did get that right, but we even had some people write into us and say, I thought Ganymede was going to be on that list as the biggest moon in the solar system, but turned out not so. Yeah, no, it's, I think it's an interesting statistics, and there's a real drop-off after those three. Most of the moons out there are icy, much more icy and less rocky. And it's also interesting people lose track the Europa. It's covered by an ice shell. We talked about its liquid water ocean, but it's mostly rocky. And then Io is just a rebel, and the moon's just cool. So <laughs> those are the uh, the densest moons in the solar system. What do you? What do we got? We got uh, we got winners. We got uh, cool yeah. stuff. What do we got? So our winner this week is Doug Berkey from White Pigeon, Michigan, USA. So Doug, because you got this question correct, I'm going to be sending you three random exoplanet posters from my personal collection in the office. <laughs> going to have fun picking those out. And along the way, we got a lot of really great comments from people, many about Ganymede. But I loved this one because this was in reference to a trivia question you asked a few weeks ago about what moon in our solar system had a crater named after Macbeth from Shakespeare. And uh, we had a little bit of a conversation about, you know, what is the equivalent of shouting Macbeth in a theater for people that are astronomy lovers? And someone wrote back <laughs> to trigger astronomers. All you have to do is shout, Pluto is a planet, and watch the havoc unfold. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Pluto. Alas. But that was Joseph Kelly Poutre from New Jersey, USA. And this comment just kind of warmed my heart. Elizabeth Codd from Arkansas, USA, wrote in to say that she's been a listener of Planetary Radio since she was a broke and confused undergrad nearly five years ago. And now she's equally as broken, confused as a graduate student, which I'm sure we all relate to, but she's really glad that she kept listening to the show and looking up. So the trivia question or uh, command this week is name all the constellations. This is the official IAU 88 constellations. All constellations named for insects. 
and only the ones named for insects, just to be clear with language, go to planetary.org slash radio contest. And you have until Wednesday, June 14th at 8 a.m. Pacific time to get us your creepy crawly bug answer. And I'm, I'm actually getting pretty close to running out of the Goodnight Oppie thermal mugs, but I'm just going to keep giving them away until I have no more left. So our winner this week will be winning another Goodnight Oppie thermal mug. All right, everybody, go out there, look up in the night sky and think about your favorite insect. Thank you and good night. We've reached the end of this week's episode of Planetary Radio, but we'll be back next week with even more space adventures. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by our star-stricken members. Mark Hilverda and Ray Pauletta are our associate producers. Andrew Lucas is our audio editor. Josh Doyle composed our theme, which is arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser. And until next week, add... Astra.